all, David Oaks, Trees of Crowd, Cherries, New Season, Trees, Trees, Trees and More Trees. It is a particularly massive, particularly sexy pod this week with one hell of an ending, so no time to waste. So, other than to say, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to us on Patreon, email me drawings of your favourite trees. Here's Bella. Bella, start. Up Secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. This week we are looking at both Tree 20 and Tree 21. The cherries. The cherries. The first of our native cherries is the wild cherry, Prunus avium, which literally translates from the Latin as the bird cherry and is an absolute arse, because the second of our native cherries is literally called the bird cherry. Our bird cherry's scientific name, presumably because Prunus avium was already taken, is Prunus padus. Padus, perhaps, in reference to the longest river in Italy, the Po, which in Latin is called the padus, and which, I'm guessing, may or may not, or was at some point, flanked by bird cherries. If you know how the Prunus padus got its name, or indeed if the river Po is flanked by cherries, please right in. Anyway, the wild cherry was traditionally called a mazard, and the bird cherry a hackberry. So from this point onwards, I'm going to be unravelling the devilish escapades and fiendish hijinks of mazard and hackberry, which sounds like the originally planned names for the crime-solving gardeners, Rosemary and Time, should they have been played by Alan Bates and Phil Davis, and not Felicity Kendall and Pam Ferris. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is a very niche joke that will make very little sense to my American listener base and is what my partner refers to as... Very you. Slightly amusing, but not laugh-out-loud funny. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was not the voice of my partner, but the voice of her very good friend Michael Gladys, who will be joining me on this journey through our native British cherries this week. You lucky, lucky people. Right. Last week I mentioned how similar the flowers of the Prunus genus are. The Prunus genus on the British Isles being represented by our wild and bird cherries, mazard and hackers, and last week's blackthorn. Well, their similarities don't end there. Their leaves are very similar by design too. Elliptical, ending in a point, serrated leaf margins twice as long as wide, with each species really only differing in terms of relative size. As such, a small wild cherry leaf could be easily mistaken for a medium bird cherry leaf, which in turn could be mistaken for a large blackthorn leaf, etc. But one clear way to tell you have got a cherry leaf on your hands is to look just beneath the leaf at where it joins the leaf stalks, the petioles. Like minuscule drops of blood, there you will find two tiny electric bright red glands. Now these are extra nectaries. You'll have heard of, and indeed probably seen, hopefully seen, the nectaries found in a plant's flowers, those that are there to attract creatures to aid the plant in pollination. Well, the cherry's extra nectaries are designed to attract a host of invertebrates for a very different purpose altogether. Both the presence of the nectar and the red colouring of the nectaries attract predatory insects, which will not only eat the nectar, but also devour any plant-eating insects nearby. Essentially, they act as bodyguards. For example, the bird cherry is susceptible to being infested by the likes of the bird cherry ermine moth, the larvae of which are capable of stripping a whole tree completely bare of leaves. Now, if you had a way to, I don't know, lure a few moth-eating parasitic wasps to your branches, say by possessing some tasty scarlet extra floral nectaries, 
it may just assist you in making sure your seeds are eventually delivered to the correct seed dispersing partners. But why are these nectaries red? Strawberries, rosehips, raspberries, midland thornhaws, hollyberries, a yew tree's arils, and our cherries' extra floral nectaries are all red. If something catches your eye in the natural world, chances are it is red. But why and how? Well, GCSE biology lesson, here we go. The retina of the human eye is made up of rods and of cones. The rods see things at low light levels but don't help with colour, whereas the cones help us see all, ish, the colours of the rainbow. We possess three kinds of colour cones, each detecting one of three colours, red, blue or green. Seeing something red means the red cone is stimulated. Seeing something blue means the blue cone is stimulated. Seeing something purple means the red and blue cones are both stimulated. Simple. Mix them all together in different combinations and we can identify all colours from red through to violet. Unfortunately, if you were a dog, chances are you don't listen to this podcast and then you'd not realise that you only have two cones. Dogs do not possess red cones. Everything dog you would be able to see would be a mix of simply blue and simply green, which means dogs live in a universe where Mick Hucknell is simply not a thing and could explain why dogs in general appear happier than humans. Now imagine you're a sparrow. Sparrows, like many birds, have the same three cones as the human eye has, but also a fourth cone. The bird's fourth cone can detect ultraviolet wavelengths. Sparrows can see colours that we cannot even imagine. As they ripen, most red berries, hips, arils, cherries, extra floral nectaries, etc. develop a thick waxy coating that reflects, as well as the visible human range of lights, ultraviolet light. In direct contrast, most green leaves do not. Even the bird cherries droop, which, although seemingly black to us, are also coated in this ultraviolet reflective material. And yes, one clear way to tell our two native cherries apart is that wild cherries are red and bird cherries are black. As such, these red or black treats, all with seeds within waiting to be dispersed, are reflecting colours that stand out vividly from hundreds of feet up in the air. The red and ultraviolet colouring is proof that these plants have evolved to make themselves highly visible to a number of extremely specialised creatures in order to successfully reproduce. Not only that, but in the cherry's case, the cherry stone is particularly resistant to digestive juices and can pass undamaged through the gut of a bird before being eventually plopped out and growing into a new tree with more ultraviolet cherries. In fact, the specific epithet of the bird cherry and the specific Latin epithet of the wild cherry, avium, comes from the birds who help disperse the stone within the cherry's droops. Quick aside, whilst we're on birds, plants are not the only creatures using this technique. Next time you get hold of a scuzzy-looking London street pigeon, take it along with you to a roller disco, whack it under a black light, and marvel at a pigeon's secret ultraviolet wing patternings. Nature's best-kept secret, and you will never look at a pigeon the same again. But David, you were talking about the colour of insect-attracting nectaries, not the colour of cherries, and certainly not the colours of ultraviolet pigeons. Well, it is the same science at play with the nectaries, only insects can have as many as six or even seven colour cones, making them even better at locating these plants to act as bodyguard or pollinator, or indeed both. Bees even have three special eyes called ocelli, which are purely purposed for the perception of ultra-purples, period.
Right. Cherries have been inspiring and feeding men and women across the world for a very long time. Having found cherry stones in ancient latrines, we know that cherries have been used as a foodstuff in Britain since the Bronze Age. And the first written reference to the cherry tree, probably the bird cherry, was by Herodotus over two and a half thousand years ago. He referred to a race of people who were bald from birth and who squeezed the cherries for their black juice, hence why it's probably the bird cherry with its black droops, and then mixed the remaining pulp into a kind of cake. So important were the cherry trees to these bald cake makers that they pitched their winter homes around the cherry trees. Herodotus says, They dwell, each man under a tree, covering it in winter with a white felt cloth, but using no felt in summer. Off the tree, bright red wild cherries are fairly sweet, albeit quite sharp, whereas the bird's black cherries are incredibly bitter and are toxic to livestock, especially goats. But that is not to say that bird cherries are not worth exploring sensorily. The aforementioned bull man-made bird cherry pulp cakes aside, the bird cherry blossom smells like almonds, also in the prunus family, from which the nectar, once gathered by honeybees, produces a quite spectacular honey. But it wasn't until about 800 years BC that people in Asia and Greece started to cultivate cherries into something like what you might buy at the supermarket today. This was assisted again further during the 16th century by none other than Henry VIII, who massively promoted the cultivation of the cherry and indeed many other fruits and stone fruits. In fact, Henry loved his stone fruits, so much so that in his fury at fruit trees being laid waste by hungry bullfinches, Henry openly condemned the birds for their criminal attacks. Bullfinches are beautiful birds, famed for their song. But when hungry, they have a bit of a bad habit when it comes to fruit trees. They tend to single out the buds of fruit trees and eat the heart from within them before the tree ever gets a chance to flower, which could be quite a pain in the neck if your job was supplying Henry VIII with his five a day. As such, Henry brought into being an act of Parliament that demanded a penny be rewarded as a bounty for... Every bullfinch or other bird that devoureth the bloth of fruit. Tudor bullfinches, it seems, suffered a fate worse than Henry's many wives. The blossom of a cherry tree is famous throughout the world. The blossoming of the bird cherry for the Finnish and the Swedes marks the start of summer... Whereas in Japan, the cherry blossom, in Japanese, sakura, used to herald the start of a new school year, as well as the new fiscal year, and has huge cultural significance. For example, since 1951, the sakura zensen, the cherry blossom front, has been tracked by Japanese meteorologists, with it even being broadcast on national television in order that no one misses out on the five-day window of perfect blossom when it arrives in mid-April. It is said to symbolise virtue, beauty and the ephemeral nature of life. As such, cherry blossom has been used by the Japanese to inspire its nation to carpe diem by making blossom the mascot of the delayed, potentially cancelled, 2020 Paralympic Games. She is a cheeky pink Powerpuff Girl slash Power Ranger hybrid cultivar and her name is Sumeity. And prior to this... Cherry blossom was used again by the Japanese to inspire nationalism, but in a far, far darker way. During World War II, Japanese pilots were often seen to paint blossom upon the side of their planes before setting out upon suicide missions. The first kamikaze unit even had a subunit within it called the Yamazakura, the wild cherry blossoms. 
But this year, whereas Someity and her Olympics may well have been delayed, the Sakura Zensen arrived freakishly early. Peak blossom bloom occurred in Kyoto on the 26th of March, 10 days ahead of the 30-year average and the earliest since records formally began. Man-made global warming is real, and the transience of the blossom, with all its symbolism for the most fleeting of life's virtues, is therefore not without an extra sense of poetic irony this year. Right, to bring us to the end of this bumper harvest of cherries, I want to talk about my second favourite child, Francis James Child. Child, or stubby to his friends due to his diminutive stature, was an American folklorist, teacher, and would eventually become Harvard's first professor of the English language. Child was obsessed with England, with Chaucer, and with the English vernacular, the true voice of the English people, as he saw it and he spent the second half of the 19th century hunting throughout the Scottish and English countryside. But rather than living prey, Child was on the hunt for folk songs. Walking from village to village past hedgerow and ancient woodland, he'd hear and write down the lyrics he encountered. Passed on verbally for centuries within communities that had little need for the written word, Child was of the belief that... Gathered from oral tradition, whether ancient or not, the true popular ballads are the spontaneous products of nature. Child collated an anthology of 305 folk ballads, known today as the Child Ballads. Now, Ballad 54 is a cheeky little ditty known as the Cherry Tree Carol. Often sung today at Christmas, it provides us with a particularly insolent take on the stepfather of Christ and, in the British version, gives our humble cherry tree a starring role. Child observed that this carol, proving popular seemingly wherever the Bible did, was often reworked according to the individual nation's favourite fruit. The truly popular carol would be sure to adapt the fruit to its own soil. In English, the tree is always a cherry. In Catalan and Provençal, the tree is an apple. And in a German-language version, we have a fig tree. It is not surprising, then, that with this carol dating from around 1500 and the cherry-loving reign of Henry VIII, in English, the lyrics have Mary being fed by an army of sentient cherry trees. Now, I have asked an absolute hero of mine to sing this ballad for me, and no, it's not that blackbird in the corner. What you're about to hear is beautiful. So, without further ado, thank you for listening. Massive thank yous to Michael Gladys for being my mystery voice this week, and for all of you multi-coned Patreon supporters listening in ultraviolet, there is a juicy extra-floral nectary bit about cherries and my time shooting Victoria, available now on Patreon. But until next week's Wild Pears, this is Martin Simpson. <laughs> Red as any blood And ups 
child or Joseph Pull me down some cherries For I am with child And Joseph flew in anger And in anger flew he Let the father of thy baby Pick cherries for thee Or let the father of thy baby Pick cherries This world 